So this morning we continue into lesson four of our study on the Holy Spirit. Um, we've been using Sinclair Ferguson's book on the Holy Spirit and looking at some of what, what he has there and adapting it uh, for this class. Uh, this morning we'll be in lesson four, uh, the Spirit of Christ, part two. So Pastor Ron started lesson uh, part, part one of this lesson last week and we'll continue into um, lesson two or part part two of lesson four. So again, as I mentioned last week, Pastor Ron uh, talked about the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus, the incarnate son. Isaiah 11, one to three prepares us to uh, expect this Jesus, this Messiah to be filled with the spirit of the Lord. That was one of the um, identification markers of this one whom would be sent, he would be filled with the spirit of the Lord and power and knowledge and in wisdom. The spirit of counsel, uh, the spirit of, of power. Luke one thirty five says that his conception came by the Holy Spirit, the conception of Christ, as the spirit overshadowed Mary to give birth to the son of the most high. Therefore, the child will be called Holy, the Son of God. Sinclair Ferguson, in his book, he talks about the ministry of the Spirit in the life of Christ in stages. So stage one, um, he identifies as conception, birth, and growth, uh, which Ron covered last week. Stage two focuses more on Jesus' baptism, his temptations, and his ministry. Now, we already uh, taught that Jesus would have been full of the spirit from conception, right? We see Old Testament prophecy telling us that that's going to happen. Um, now, if he was, which he is, um, if he was filled with the spirit from conception, what is the significance of the coming of the spirit at his baptism? What does that, that mean? Why is that important? Why does scripture narrate for us this occasion, this event where the spirit descends like a dove upon Christ at his baptism, right? He's already filled with the spirit. Um, and the scripture goes on to tell us that he's filled with the spirit um, without measure. So what is happening when the spirit descends as a dove upon Christ? That's what we'll talk about first in this lesson, uh, the spirit of Christ and his baptism. Uh, you'll see that on your note sheet there and you can just as you listen take notes maybe write down questions things that come to mind for you as we walk through this and discuss it together first let me have someone turn to luke chapter 3 verses 21 to 22 luke chapter 3 verses 21 to 22 who wants to read that for us Okay, thank you, Crystal. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized in the train, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Okay. Now, prophets and kings in the Old Testament were given unique endowments of the Spirit for the purpose of fulfilling specific tasks God had given to them. In Numbers eleven twenty five, it says, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him, Moses, 
and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied. Saul was given the spirit to lead, to speak, and to rule God's people. 1 Samuel 10.10, it says, When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. David, another patriarch, was given the spirit for the same purpose. 1 Samuel 16.13 says, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Now, when you think about this in relation to David, right? <clears throat> this is why David could cry in Psalm 51:11, "Cast me not away from your presence and take not your holy spirit from me." It's not his salvation or his or uh, regeneration that he's begging God not to take from him. David remembers what happened to Saul before him when God took the spirit from Saul and he doesn't want that to happen to him. So he says, Lord, uh, take not your Holy Spirit from me. When my kids are playing on their iPads um, and one of them starts acting up, I have to we have to take the iPad from them. And then once we take it away from them, the other starts to straighten up and say, well, I don't want that to happen to me, right? And if they're disobedient, then we say, okay, I'm gonna take it away from you like I took it away from your brother or your sister, right? And they, and they straighten up. God gave a unique endowment of the spirit to David and others in the Old Testament. And David begged God not to take away the spirit of the spirit that God had given him to fulfill his office. Right? He was a king, but it also included prophecy and, and priestly roles. The Holy Spirit descending on Jesus in bodily form, Ferguson says, marks Jesus public entrance into and consecration to his messianic ministry. In Luke 4, 16 to 21, when Jesus was in the temple, he reads Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon him uh, because he has anointed me. And he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus exposits the Old Testament for his hearers, all those who would have been in the synagogue. He himself, Christ, is the Christological fulfillment of Isaiah 61. And he teaches that so that everyone in the synagogue could know Isaiah 61 is talking about me. Today, this is fulfilled before your eyes, before your presence. And so Jesus has started his ministry. The Bible says at about 30 years old. And we could probably say that that was around the time that one would come into the uh, priestly office. Um, it's, uh, we, we could probably say that. And the event that marks Jesus' public entrance into the stage of ministry is consecration through baptism, prayer, and the power of the Holy Spirit. These things that would not have been uh, foreign, but that you see in the Old Testament as well. The anointing of Jesus by the Holy Spirit is for 
this threefold messianic office and ministry, which is prefigured. And what? what? What are those three offices we see in the um, Old Testament? What's that? The PPK. <laughs> the PPK. And what is the PPK already? <laughs> Prophet, priest, and king. The PPK. <laughs> Easy to remember, right? Yes, exactly. You are exactly right. Prophet, priest, and king. As they were anointed in the Old Testament to fulfill their office, Christ is anointed in the New Testament to fulfill his office, his threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. But unlike the prophets and the priests and the kings in the Old Testament, who could have the spirit taken away when they sinned or disobeyed God or didn't carry out their function and their office according to God's commands, Jesus received the spirit without measure. So everything in the life of Christ, including his uh, being uh, anointed by the Holy Spirit at his baptism, it, it's all fulfilling and it's standing on the shoulders of what actually happened in the Old Testament. So it's not anything new. It's actually something old, but it's new in that Christ is not just prophet. He's not just priest. He's not just king, but he has a threefold office. Prophet, priest, and king. PPK. Thank you, Artie. <laughs> so it was, it was by the Spirit and through the Spirit that Christ's sinless state secured the Spirit's constant companionship. John's baptism, his baptism, baptism was a baptism of repentance. Jesus was sinless, so his baptism can't be one of repentance, right? His baptism was not of repentance. Jesus being born by the Spirit and receiving the Spirit without measure was to accomplish our redemption. It was for us. So the cross of Christ is essential to the mission of Christ. Jesus' baptism and anointing of the Spirit prepares him for what Sinclair Ferguson calls his death baptism. His death baptism. Now someone turn to Hebrews 9.14, or you can all turn there, we'll read it together. Hebrews 9.14. And whoever gets there first, you can just read it for us nice and loud. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Thank you. Now, through Jesus, through his death, <clears throat> every believer is baptized into Christ Jesus. Uh, that, that, that's the source of um, the believer's union with Christ, uh, being uh, baptized into his, his death, Romans says. Um, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that, and I'll explain that here now. That means that they were baptized into Christ's death. They were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. And because of that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, when I say that, um, when I'm explaining this from, from Romans, I'm, I'm not saying, um, I'm not saying a baptismal regeneration, 
right? I'm not saying that when, when they're baptized, when we baptize someone that they are regenerated, that that saves them. Uh, Romans 1, when it, talk, Romans, when it talks about baptism into the death of Christ, it talks about the believer dying and therefore um, with Christ and being buried with him and being raised with him, which baptism signifies and points to. Okay. <clears throat> so the same spirit through whom Christ offered up himself to God is the same spirit through whom Believers crucify the flesh and offer up themselves as living sacrifices to God. So we have union with Christ by the Spirit. When you think about sanctification in the life of, of the believer, and the Spirit that Christ had without measure that he gives to us, that he sends and he gives to us, uh, the, the Son and the Father, which we'll talk about a little later, is a Spirit that indwells us. So we have the very spirit of Christ sanctifying us and making us to look more like Christ. The believer is never left to themselves, right? They have the very spirit of, of God, right? And Christ assures us by his death and resurrection and ascension that the spirit, we have the security that he has sealed us, which it says in Ephesians, we're sealed by the promise Holy Spirit when we believe the word of truth. And it is by the Spirit that we're brought to the end of our full sanctification, which is our glorification. And we have perfect communion with Christ. Right? This all happens by the power, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> okay, any, let me pause there. Um, any questions or comments before we go on to the next section of Christ's temptation? Okay, let's look at the temptation of Christ. Uh, turn to Acts 10, 37 to 38. And somebody read those verses for us. Acts 10, verses 37 through 38. Who wants to read that for us? Thank you. So God was with Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. It's through the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus healed the sick, that he cast out demons, that he raised Lazarus from the dead. His entire ministry was spent in humble dependence upon the power of the Holy Spirit. He fulfilled all righteousness and accomplished salvation for us by the power of the Spirit. Now, when we think about Jesus' ministry, his, his earthly ministry, we could say that, well, of course he raised the dead. Of course he cast out demons and healed the sick. He's Jesus. He's, he's God. He's God and man. He, he, he could do that. But Scripture, it does say that, but it, it doesn't simply allow us to say that. Because the Spirit talks about Jesus being given the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, being, being anointed by the Spirit, 
and being even uh, dependent upon the power of the spirit as he fulfilled his ministry. Right. So, yes, he's he's God. Um, He's fully man. But he was also empowered by the spirit, um, which is the very his, his anointing was by the spirit, which was how he could fulfill his threefold office. Um, and our and accomplish our, our redemption through that. So a part of Jesus filling for fulfilling all righteousness includes his humble obedience as the second Adam. All right. So he boldly stands on the word of God and on the authority of God's word using discernment to distinguish good and evil, which Adam failed to do. He lived in complete obedience to what the scriptures command. We see Jesus' um, obedience practice when he's tempted in the wilderness. Jesus was led by who into the wilderness? The Spirit. He's led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I I have a a preached a sermon on this um, a little while back, which you can go on, go to the web page under the sermons and find and and listen to where I get into this in more, more detail. But Mark 4.1 says the spirit actually, it uses this language, it drove Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. He says, <clears throat> oh, let me back up here. Ferguson on page 48 of his book, he makes this a great observation here, which I think is really helpful. He says, in the spirit's ministry here, driving out expresses the energy and power of the spirit as the Lord who advances the kingdom of God into enemy occupied territory. So Christ, he says he's not he's not passive here, but he's driven out into the wilderness as the son of God with the unique measure of the Holy Spirit into enemy occupied territory. The territory of the evil one. Um, even the earth, his condescension to the earth um, is sort of enemy-occupied territory, an earth that's been cursed by the fall. Um, Jesus is sent to and now into sort of the pit of, of Satan's um, concentrated temptation, the wilderness scene. And he's driven out there by the Spirit. Now, in systematic uh, theology, th- theologians have used terms like passive obedience and active obedience to talk about Jesus' ministry. In his active obedience, he does what scripture commands, fulfilling all righteousness. In his passive obedience, he doesn't do um, the things that scripture forbids and yet goes on to die for sin that he didn't commit, right? But I think you see both active and passive obedience in the wilderness temptation. The spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted, and he obediently goes. The spirit um, drove Jesus into the wilderness, and he uh, submits himself, understanding his mission to fulfill all righteousness and accomplish salvation, and he obediently goes. He understands his mission, yet he will not fold to the tempter's temptations. He is the man's man and goes as a warrior protector of his bride to fight for her in the wilderness scene. 
in his book on the Holy Spirit, Ferguson puts it this way. He was driven into the wilderness as an assault force. His testing was set in the context of a holy war in which he entered the enemy's domain, absorbed his attacks and sent him into retreat. And the power of the spirit, Jesus advanced as the divine warrior, the God of battles who fights on behalf of his people and for their salvation. So we see in Christ this uh, this warrior being driven out by the spirit to accomplish a salvation, to defeat Satan, which ultimately happens on the cross. But we see a picture of it here in the wilderness. And the wilderness battle is really a rerun of of Eden. Like Adam, Jesus was tested by Satan to reject the words of God. Unlike Adam, Jesus chose obedience and suffering. His resistance and his faithfulness show us what Israel failed to do when they were in the wilderness. The spirit drove Egypt out or drove Israel rather out into the wilderness, out of Egypt. And they grumbled against God and grieved the Holy Spirit. Adam full and flourishing and the Eden oasis was tempted and he fell. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness and a world that had become desolate because of the first Adam's sin. Jesus hungry, hot and in a dry desert was tempted and still obeyed. Adam having an oasis of all good things to enjoy disobeyed. Jesus in opposite conditions obeys perfectly. Again, fulfilling all righteousness. He fought to redeem the elect from Adam's helpless, of, of Adam's helpless race and a world fallen because of Adam's sin in order to bring his reward into union with himself, the last Adam. <clears throat> now, after Jesus battles with Satan, with the help and power of his closest companion, the Holy Spirit, what happens next? Acts 10.38 says that he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. So he comes out of this wilderness scene um, and he goes about doing good and healing those who are oppressed. Luke 4.32 says he came teaching with authority. And Matthew 12.28 says that Jesus uh, says Jesus of, of Jesus Uh, But if it is by the spirit that I cast out demons, he says, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If it is by the spirit that I cast out demons, then the kingdom has come upon you. This, along with Isaiah 61, shows us the evidence that is promising uh, the coming one is, in fact, who he said, who who the Old Testament said he would be, the one who came in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, <clears throat> again, I'm going to quote Ferguson here or reference something he said in his book, which I thought was interesting as well. He says, Jesus came anointed by the power uh, or by the spirit and power. Um, or let me, let me back up. Christ being anointed by the spirit and power, rather, helps us to understand why 
while the blasphemy of the son may be forgiven, that against the spirit will not be forgiven. Turn to um, Matthew twelve thirty-two. Let's uh, take a look at this this verse here. Matthew twelve thirty-two. All right, someone read that, that verse for us. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Okay. <clears throat> Ferguson says the blasphemy of the Spirit involves not just a personal reaction to Jesus, but a rejection of the Spirit's ministry and therefore of the evidence that the kingdom has come and the new age has, has dawned. Interesting. <clears throat> yeah. So he says, so he, in, in looking at this verse where it says, whoever blasphemes the Son of Man may be forgiven, but he who blasphemes the Spirit will not be forgiven. He says the blasphemy against the Spirit involves not just a personal reaction to Jesus Christ, but the rejection of the Spirit's ministry in the life of Christ, and therefore the rejection that the kingdom has come. So the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is essentially the blasphemy against what God has revealed to be the only way of salvation through the last Adam, the only means by which anyone can be saved. And so it's not just... Um, Jesus Christ, but it's actually the ministry which, which uh, Christ's ministry empowered by the Spirit. When that's rejected, then it's rejecting the whole ethos of what salvation is pointing to, which is Christ accomplishing through the last Adam. Very, very interesting, right? I, I thought that as I read that, I was like, wow, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> it was really good. He says, the spirit is God's um, divine anointing seal. And it's put upon Christ. And it shows us that the consummated kingdom will come. The evidence is displayed for all to see in the ministry of the spirit of Christ. The age to come has really broken into this age. When Christ came on the scene, he healing and raising the dead and healing diseases and fulfilling what Isaiah said he would do, there's this divine reversal happening. The sin that came, the death and sin that came into the world, when Adam sinned and sort of became this door through which sin entered, uh, Christ comes on the scene and he, he heals those who are oppressed. Uh, he raises those who have died. Um, he cast out demons. There's something happening in each of his miracles that's saying the thing that's promised, this is the evidence of it. It's actually happening now. Lazarus is raised, but he will die again and be raised again eternally. Right? Christ even, we'll talk about in a bit, is raised as the first fruits of what we will be. There's this constant divine reversal happening in the ministry of Jesus. The sick are healed, the lame walk, prisoners are set free from satanic oppression. The offensive forces of the kingdom of God are plundering and taking back that which belongs to King Jesus. Okay, let me pause there. 
That was stage two. Uh, before I go to stage three, any questions, comments, anything that I just shared? Any other verses come to mind for you? Yep. Okay. Yeah. Zealous, yeah. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Well, Jesus, when he's um, talking to his disciples, um, when he sends them out in power and they go out casting out demons and whatnot. And he says that if you enter someone's house um, and they don't receive the message, he tells them to to dust off your your feet. Um, But then he goes on to say that for it's not you that they're rejecting, but it's me. Right. So we are Paul uses this language. He says we're merely uh, vessels. Right. We're we're clay pots and inside is the treasure, um, which is Christ in union with Christ by the spirit. And so when we share with family members and friends, we're really we're we're carrying the message. We want to be people who are as much out of the way of the gospel as possible. Right. So we simply we carry the message lay it out as scripture lays it out that Christ has died for sins, was raised on the third day. Um, And when we share that with them, we do that with a a couple of things. We we can do it with confidence, right? Because it's, it's God's message, not ours. And we can do it in obedience and we can do it with dependent prayer. So I think prayer, um, as we even go to share the message, Lord, help me not to be a stumbling block by how I say it. Help me not to be unnecessarily offensive. The gospel is offensive enough. Let, help, help me just share it in humility. And I think, um, I don't remember, maybe Spurgeon, um, some great dead guy, said that, um, I know that's a bad, bad way to say that. <laughs> he, he was a good guy. Um, um, <laughs> I forgot what I was going to say now. Um, oh, I'm a beggar telling another beggar where I found bread, 
right? So we see ourselves rightly as sinners. There's nothing great about us. Paul says not many of you were noble or wise or anything like that. We simply go with the gospel, recognizing that we are those who deserve hell. And he saved us. And we want to tell them there is another way, right? There, there, there is life and joy and salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help me to be humble. Help me to be clear. And you do that work that only you can do in their hearts. And so it's not so much about um, how I feel after I share, but Lord, help me be nothing. Like uh, the most humble person doesn't think of himself um, less. He, he, he doesn't consider himself at all, right? He proclaims the message and he walks away. And I remember MacArthur saying, the Christian can lay his head on his bed at night, resting completely in the sovereignty of God. Um, but it is, like you said, it is a rejection of, of Christ and not you. And the natural man doesn't understand the things of the spirit. So even when we explain that, it may not always be clear, but we can entrust the spirit to do that work that only he can do and draw people to himself and just preach it and get out of the way. <laughs> preach it and get out of the way. Um, and dependent, constant prayer. So that would be my my counsel there. Anybody else have anything they want to share? I, I see a flip side of that too as a point of humility that if they reject your proposition it's better that they, they reject you rather than rejecting the God. Hmm. You see? Yeah, that's it a good point. you away also and you won't get offended if there was a rejection. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, I remember um <laughs> Another smart dead guy. Um, <laughs> oh, it's, it's Spurgeon again. I, I quote Spurgeon a lot. <laughs> In his book, Lectures to My Students, he says, um, it doesn't matter what one says about me. What it, it matters what they say about my savior. Um, and he was, he's writing this to his students, this pastor's college that, that he started, writing to these ministers-to-be. Um, and it's in the context of, what happens when you are sharing the gospel? Um, how do you guard from offense? How do you simply proclaim the message? Um, have your mind so focused on the Lord Jesus Christ that you become invisible. Um, and that's not always easy because we, we get offended, right? We're like, this is like, I'm telling you about the way of salvation. I remember sharing the gospel with my cousin at one point um, and I'm, I've shared with her and I, I got off the phone and she was just like, I, I feel like you're, you're pushing this on me. And I was, I was like, I, after I was like, I said that in the best way I can think to do it, <laughs> to not be offensive and to not. And I remember I got off the phone and I cried over her and it, it hurt. You know, I, I was offended that she thought that I was trying to push it on her. At the same time, I was like, she's rejecting the gospel. So that, that, that's there. We're not robots, right? We, we feel that, that rejection at times. But as Paul said, I think if we can remind ourselves that we are just clay vessel, right? We're, we're pots and the treasure is not us. I'm not offering myself, but we're offering the gospel. I think it, it, it helps that, that struggle. But, okay. <clears throat> Let me jump to the, the last section here. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll look at Jesus, uh, where am I? Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. 
That's a good question, Madeline. Thank you for asking. Um, Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. So Jesus was a man of sorrows, the Bible says, acquainted with grief. That means that it was familiar to him. Grief, sorrows, it were, they were familiar to him. His whole life, not just his crucifixion event, could be seen as one long period of suffering with the cross as the apex. The whole ministry of Jesus was carried out by the power of the Spirit. The gospel shows us Jesus' ministry accompanied and empowered by the Spirit. Now, reference to Christ's ministry, um, uh, or the Spirit's ministry, rather, during Jesus' earthly ministry concerning his death. There's really only one um, explicit reference to the Spirit in relation to Jesus' death. And it's Hebrews 9.14, which we read earlier. Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God. Christ offers himself through the spirit without blemish to God. So even his offering of himself as a sacrificial offering was by the power of the spirit. From Jesus' immaculate conception to his sinless sacrificial death, the spirit was the humble, unseen, invisible power um, empowering and sustaining the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Spirit wasn't just there overshadowing Mary at Jesus' birth or leading him into the wilderness temptation or strengthening his soul as he offered himself on the cross. The Spirit is also involved in the resurrection of Christ. Every aspect of Christ's earthly ministry is fully engulfed, empowered by, upheld by the Holy Spirit. Now, when... I preach or teach, uh, you will hear me uh, reference, quote, talk about the patristics because I love reading the patristics. Um, I love quoting them. I love getting their insights. Um, The patristics, it's a branch of theological study of the most prominent writings of the pastors and theologians in the early church. They would have written somewhere between AD 100 and AD 600. Now, during this time, the, patristic, the patristics would use a Latin phrase to talk about the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a Latin phrase. I was practicing this week so that in class I could say it right. <laughs> so we'll see. <laughs> it's opera trinitatis ad extra sunt indivisa. That means the external works of the Trinity are undivided. And his eternal works of creation, providence, and redemption, the triune God is undivided. And every work or operation of God, the three persons work inseparably. The unity of the three persons and the external works of the Trinity stem from the unity of being an essence of the triune God in eternity. Although certain aspects of Jesus' ministry or um, God's providence in creation, they may highlight maybe the Father or in, in choosing and electing or the Son and purchasing or the Spirit and sanctifying. Each, one person may be highlighted of the Trinity, but the, the Spirit work, the, the Trinity works always inseparably, uh, undivided 
operations. Now, I got that, de that definition from a book by Matthew Barrett called Non-Greater, The Undomesticated Attributes of God. He's really accessible and easy to, to follow when he talks about these deep theological things. But our salvation is accomplished by the Trinity, sanctification, the Trinity, um, Jesus' earthly ministry, Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, although the, the scriptures draw out the Spirit's work in the life of Christ. Now, I say all that to say that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is an example of the undivided operations of our triune God. The resurrection is chiefly attributed to the Father. Acts 2.32, it says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Acts 17.31 says, Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15.15 We are found, well, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. But it's also the resurrection of Christ is attributed to the work of the Son. John 2, 19 to 21. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. John 10, 17 to 18 says, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. The resurrection of Christ is attributed to both the Father and the Son, but Paul in Romans 1, three to four says, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Christ Jesus our Lord. This coupled with the faithful saying that Jesus was vindicated by the spirit, which is a reference to the resurrection as justification. You see that in 1 Timothy 3.16 and Peter's words that he was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit, 1 Peter 3, 18, underlines the spirit's role in the resurrection. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Scripture says all are involved in the resurrection of Christ. The Holy Spirit's role in the ministry and the life of Jesus is monumental. I don't know if we've given enough thought to the Spirit's role in the life of Christ, the Spirit's operations in the life of Christ. Immaculate conception. Um, he grew in stature and wisdom and favor with God. Um, he, he is baptized and anointed by the Holy Spirit who descends like a dove. He comes in the power of the Spirit, proclaiming the gospel, raising from the dead, um, loosing those who are oppressed by Satan. Hebrews 9.14, he offered himself as a sacrifice by the Spirit. He was raised by the Spirit. He ascends, and even now as he sits on the throne, the benefits of what Christ accomplished for us are communicated, given to us, served to our souls by the Spirit. 
He is the constant companion of Christ, and Christ gives him to us now as our companion, our helper, the Holy Spirit. His role is crucial. The success of Christ by the power of the Spirit gives strong assurance to our salvation and our sanctification. 1 Corinthians 15.45 says the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Ferguson explained that this verse explains the nature of the resurrection body. Christ's resurrection body is the first fruits or a prototype of the new humanity. Our union with Christ through the sealing of the spirit as assurance or is assurance rather uh, and a promise that his resurrected body is what ours will be like. He is the first fruits, right? In sort of agricultural context, the, the farmer plants and the first fruits of the crop shows what the rest of uh, those, those um, the, the, the crop will be like. The first fruit is an indication of what the rest will be like. The Spirit calls Christ the first fruits. He is like what we will be, right? We, we don't become a part of God, right? That in, in Mormon theology, they be, believe you become God, right? You, you own a planet like it's an apartment complex. No, we, we, we don't believe that. But the Bible does say when, when Christ is raised, right? He eats, he takes in food, he has the wounds in his hands. They recognize him as Christ, even with his resurrected body, right? He's the first fruits of what we will be, which is really interesting to think about. Um, but it's, it's true. Scripture says that. When Jesus announces to his disciples that he must leave, he gives them a word of assurance. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. John 14, 18. Now, what's interesting is that he says, I will come to you. And then he says, and then he uses this language of orphans, which is intentional. What's another title given to the spirit in scripture? This is a uh, trivia question. It's not a trick question. <laughs> what's, what's another title given to the Spirit in Scripture? Think about the language of orphan. The Spirit of adoption. The Spirit of adoption. <laughs> Anna's like, yes. <laughs> the Spirit of adoption. Right? Romans. 815 for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry Abba Father right I think Miguel you just said you, you, you use the term father right this affectionate relationship Christ says I won't leave you as orphans but you will have the spirit of adoption as sons by which you cry out Abba Father all of this language weaves together um, the significance of our union with Christ. We're not adopted and sort of left out in the barn, right? The, the kid that's chained up in the barn. You, you feed the family at the table, and then you go out to the barn and throw scraps to the, the, the kid, right? No, he says, you're adopted. You're at the table. My father is your father, right? The spirit of adoption. If you look in your Bibles under John 14, 18, you probably see the uh, title to that, uh, the sort of editor's note in that section, Jesus promises the Holy Spirit. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. Um, 
when Jesus says, I will come back to you, we usually think about his resurrection reappearance or his final return or consummation. But in this context, he's referring to the coming of the gift of the Holy Spirit. I will come to you. The Spirit will come to you. That's, that, that, that's the closeness of the, 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 the union that we have with Christ by the Holy Spirit. He can say I and speak of the Spirit given to us. Pastor Ryan mentioned last week that some theologians um, or some, some theologians said that the book of Acts um, of the Apostles could be called the book of the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Acts 1 2, 1 to 2 says, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given command through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. But the book of Acts could also be entitled the continued acts of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. That's what's, what's, what's happening there. <clears throat> okay, next week we'll, we'll consider uh, Pentecost and the Paraclete. Pentecost and the giving of the, the Holy Spirit. The ministry of the Spirit as he communicates blessings, benefits, and power um, of Jesus. This happens through the church as the new temple in which the Spirit dwells. And this happens as the church attests to the messianic authority of Christ. So we'll get into that next week. Okay. So let me, let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll close out. Father, we give you thanks for the Holy Spirit. We thank you. Father, we thank you. Lord Jesus Christ, for sending the Holy Spirit, the helper who reminds us of the words of Christ, who sanctifies us, who causes us daily to crucify the flesh, who's bringing us into the full inheritance of uh, our glorified state and the, which the beauty of that is perfect, unblemished, unsinful union with Christ. We pray that you would even bless us now, Lord, as we go into the the uh, corporate worship room to worship together. Um, fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. Um, open up our ears, open up our eyes that we would um, behold and see and love what we see and respond rightly to your revelation to us of yourself. Without your spirit, it is impossible for blind men to see or deaf men to hear. Those who are spiritually blind and spiritually deaf but we ask you now, Father, to give us grace to um, lead us by your spirit, uh, protect us by your spirit, seal us in by your spirit, and bless us as we worship you, our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, um, according to the rules, the means, the instructions you've given us in your word as to how you ought to be approached. Um, help us to sing with joy, to pray with fervor, to hear with diligence and to have worship resonate in our hearts and minds when we conceive, think of, meditate on our triune God and the revelation of yourself through your word. We give you thanks for these things. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen.